0: people need order in Twelve rules.
1: We finished the book in like December and then the about the internet and the far right and then
0: mm-hmm.
1: we kind of the, the um, riot at the Capitol happened like oh maybe yeah. two weeks after and we now having to write a postscript for the, uh, just to bring everything into focus more. Mm-hmm. It's just a
2: it's okay though because t- t- today we have managed to define fascism. Finally, after oh, you did, yeah, yeah. What is it? Oh, it's a trade secret. I'm afraid. <sighs> uh, Damn it!
0: Okay, yeah. I gotta buy the book now. Yeah, no.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think the book that is going to be free now. Yeah, the book could be free. The book will yeah. be free. okay. Uh, it's all Creative Commons. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's like, it's like the, the Coke recipe or something. So like um, each of us <laughs> only has half of it. Um, I know I know that it's something to do with a mass associational form. And I think Alex knows something about a bourgeois state, but uh, we haven't. yet. Yeah, no one actually to put the two things together. That's a kind of an inside joke from our previous podcast. So uh, if you didn't understand what I was saying, go back and listen to David Renton uh, <laughs> about a week, week and a half ago. Um, we are really, really happy to be here um, with Josh Zittorello who is a writer-researcher, um, Twitch streamer, um, Discord uh, social group admin, and kind of teenage radical kind of whisperer, um, who has been doing like a lot of really interesting work for the like the last, I think, four years now um, on a space that used to be called Politogram, and it's now I think kind of uh, moved away from maybe that kind of that term, but has, um, you know, potentially kind of online youth, cultures uh, particularly focused on like the combinations and recombinations of different political ideologies as they um are used as maybe this is maybe kind of a bad summary maybe you can correct me like as as political ideology becomes a kind of token that people use to exchange amongst themselves right as a kind of marker of a of a, a an identity that is an mm. identity of being radical but not of having any particular beliefs in that radicalism maybe that's like a totally Opaque definition. I mean, maybe that you don't think that's true at all. But I mean,
0: yeah. Well, you know? I think I think there are questions of branding. I mean, essentially, that's the that is the infrastructure. That's how social media is designed, right? And now we have this problem of uh, differentiating what is a genre, what is a subculture versus what is a political movement, and the lines between that are increasingly blurry, uh, which makes it very interesting. But also the um, the the rate of uh, uh, meaningful interactions, <laughs> um, basically doing this research, you're chucking out 95% of what you encounter as being nonsense, but the remaining 5% is really, really important. So I think of the various channels, the Twitch stream, the podcast, the books, the articles as um, just chugging tons and tons of primary research and trying to distill like what is that really important 5%. Uh, sometimes it's really clear. Sometimes it takes a while to bear fruit, and you you go back and you're like, oh yeah, it was really that thing from like 2019. That's that's what it was. And um, I I published the um, I self published the second edition of this book project. This group of interviews. Um, the title of the book is Twenty Interviews. That was a commission from Rhizome, and I was looking back at it in advance of um, uh, listing it to print on demand in order and. I realized there's tons of things in there that were like, oh, this just like evaporated. It never became a meme. It never like uh, entered into the discourse. And then there were other things that like, oh shit, we actually could, we could have detected it much earlier. Like you can find Boogaloo memes in there six to eight months before they were in every major city in the US. Right. So, so it's things like that of having your ear close to the ground, doing the early detection. And, um, I like, I like meme whisperer. That's, that's good. I was thinking maybe more like uh, social media political trend casting or something like that, but let's go with meme whisperer. <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad that I've given you a kind of new job title as well. Um, how do you know, what do you
2: have? How do you know that something is going to blow up? How do you know that something is not going to blow up? What do you have a, just a feeling for it? Or is there, are there some heuristics that we can apply when we're looking at these cultures?
0: Yeah, well, I guess the issue is that if you're doing the quantitative analysis, these things are way too small to be visible through any type of a data eye, right? If you're doing the bird's eye view, you're looking at something that is quantitatively insignificant that then experiences a viral spike. So there's not a way to just scrape a bunch of data and analyze it and then do your predictions off of that. So it really does have to be a qualitative analysis. Um that being said, there's there's some numbers that you can use to parse this stuff, but I think it's really just about looking at the actual thing, looking at the young people, looking at their accounts, looking at their media diet, and trying to create um, some kind of coherent narrative that runs through the whole thing. There's a certain degree of social resonance
2: that a meme has to have in order to be picked up and used by lots of other people has to kind of mean something in the discursive space of online uh, play or online talking or online discussion online meme making right it has to kind of mean something in that sense and i'm kind of wondering if like maybe the reason why it's so difficult to detect what will blow up and what won't blow up is because we don't have you know a general theory of posting
1: Mm.
2: like we need a general theory of posting why do people post what are they doing when they're posting and particularly does this change with age does it change with um like, like demographics could be like obviously one one variable but does it does it change uh obviously changes with different platforms and so on but i, I feel like i don't know why people post on the internet at all or i'm not I'm, i understand it for myself i, I know i do it but i don't know what the kind of general model is for why people are actually participating so what is the mm. general motivation for participation i guess is there is the question really like right? it's do you think there's, there's a particular mm. one
0: well, it's, it's curious now, because I mean, for me, it's it's really clear in that like uh, I earn my living through the visibility that I get on social media. So there's a very clear incentive for me to post. Uh, I imagine that, that for you guys, it's something similar that you're producing content, you're trying to get uh, clicks, trying to get views. Uh, we're all in this content rat race. But there is a totally different way of engaging where I see people who are otherwise uh, wealthy, successful, experience, um, you know, have, have a very charmed quality of life, and then go about these weird, affected, totally um, artificial like influencer type photo shoots of themselves that, to an audience of like seemingly like 50 people. It's it's very it's very perplexing. So I I feel like there's, I mean, there's a whole spectrum of different uh, motivations for people. And um, for some people, it's just earning a living. For other people, it's, it's really not. Um, but to, uh, uh, to your first point that you had mentioned, I feel like um, if a meme doesn't resi- if a meme doesn't resonate with an audience, uh, it doesn't get passed along, right? So conceivably you could have monkeys uh, bashing away at a typewriter and generate every text and image combination. And people have literally done this with uh, uh, JavaScripts where they just uh, you know add a B combinations and is this funny? Is this funny? And um, that those things don't often produce meaningful results. So if the meme doesn't resonate with you on some level, it doesn't get passed along. And I think that this has to be framed in contrast to an increasingly deep crisis in the media narrative, uh, fake news, bias, whatever you have, um, that it's really clear that you just can't trust the things that are published and memes seem to have some type of an internal truth. Like there's an internal compass to them that it resonates with you on some deep level. Maybe it's esoteric or mystical, or it's like a sense of conspiratorial elites that are putting microchips in your food, or I, I guess not the food they put in your body, but they're putting soy in the food and- They put, uh, they put microchips wherever they can. There are microchips they put, everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's chips all over the place. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so I think uh, basically what we're watching is- like a crisis that starts at the top of these old legacy, uh, rotten media institutions that are, are really struggling to produce ideology at the moment. And people are moving, um, or they're just gravitating towards these memes that seem to have some kind of a truth in it. Although that truth is really fuzzy and um, maybe in most cases a worse source of information, in some cases a much better source of information. It's that like 95 to five ratio again.
1: There seems to be like, I suppose, different currents to memes as well. Like some, the things that most people see are like the ones that take over the internet and break out massively and kind of explode and then kind of die back again. But there's all these like kind of little explosions of memes, I suppose, that are kind of in one particular platform or one particular community. I got briefly obsessed with, um, this kind of red meat posting section of Facebook where they kind of you know t- t- eat raw meat and talk about lifting and you know very into Nazism and I, I just stumbled it tumbled into this thing when someone kind of posted a link to me that you might be interested in this you studied this stuff and this is this com- this language this kind of visual language and that's going on that's was completely and utterly alien to me and I kind of like you know, for a little bit, I kind of started eating tiny pieces of raw meat to see what the big deal was and stuff. And it's just like, there's, there's a, my point is, there's like a, there's a bunch of memes going on that we never see. Or at least if you're not looking for them, you never see. And I find that kind of
0: the most difficult to wrap my head around with this whole thing. The, the meat stuff, the, I, the sauerkraut, those guys, they're really interesting because I have to imagine that anti-vaxxers were something very similar to that five, 10 years ago, and now it's super, super mainstream, right? So I think this is, again, kind of this early detection issue where, uh, although this is like quantitatively really small, we're not talking about Kylie Jenner, right? We're talking about a few thousand people spread out between a few platforms that are really interested in these recipes of like eating quail eggs and um I guess uh, oats, oats is like their big thing now. I don't fully understand why, but oats, uh, I I guess turn you gay or some shit like this. Um, And uh, almond, is it almond milk too? I don't know, they have a few things that are like their hobby horses, but yeah, you're supposed to eat sauerkraut, raw meat, eggs. And I think you're also supposed to use eggs as shampoo as well. And I think you're supposed to put put them in your eyes too. And I don't fully know the, I mean, some of these things, I'm sure like there are some health benefits, I think you can also die from drinking raw milk too. I think you can literally die from it.
1: There's a there was a there's a great Twitter thing recently I saw where one guy was setting out to eat raw meat exclusively in his diet and had to like kind of do this big Twitter thread about why he had to stop because his body was literally shutting down from all the I suppose worms and weird shit that was going on in there.
0: It was <laughs> horrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a uh, it's it's funny because it's like it's that kind of thing where. They're actually leaning towards like a, a little bit of truth. Like there's terrible adverse effects from industrialized production and uh, you know uh, factory farming and processed foods and all this type of stuff. But um, you know maybe that's a good hamster wheel to keep people on. Just keep them on the meat and the cabbage stuff and don't get them involved in the distribution of scarce resources. And like let us plan the trains let them handle the, the meat recipes. And that's a good division of labor in society.
1: No, just the interesting thing about these kind of, there, there is an undercurrent of fascism to all these red meat things a lot of the time, but it's kind of an insular fascism. It's like, I'm going to be off in the forest eating meat and thinking Hitler was good rather than going out and killing people or whatever. It's a weird kind of like, you can stay in that bubble and just do Hitler stuff and eat red meat, It's it's cool. It seems yeah, like, yeah. Yeah.
2: like the, 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 the esotericism has really accelerated. Like so in the in the period after the Second World War, there was a whole bunch of esoteric Nazis, obviously, and it was obvious why they were doing it, right? So there's like Miguel Serrano and so on, who's completely crazy. Go up and look, go up and look go look up Miguel Serrano if you don't know who that is. Um he's uh who, who basically invents various kinds of uh, mysticism and has a um a theory about why it is that lots of Nazis fled to South America that recapitulates a um a, a kind of 10,000 year old myth that had happened um when the original aryans had also gone to you know blah blah blah, 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 blah. whatever like you know, the, the, these kind of things and that happens but that takes i think about like 10-15 years whereas it seems like the far right now has simultaneously had this, um, uh, it kind of crashed and burned after Charlottesville. And then again, like on an international level after um, Christchurch. And then I guess another section of the far right has like crashed and burned after Trump. There's still this mm-hmm. kind of QAnon remnant, but the switch to esotericism, the switch to kind of private fascism or private far right beliefs, is has been extraordinarily quickly, extraordinarily quick. And I wonder if that's because politics now simply is meta-politics. By which I mean that there is no site of contestation in society. Society is just not contested. It's not, there is no, despite what the kind of liberals were saying about the Capitol riot, and despite what people were, they were saying again about Charlottesville in 2017, there was no point at which the state was even remotely threatened by these, these, these far right groups. Um, and so I, I, it seems like all politics is, 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 is now um, doomed. To just stay mm-hmm. in the level of metapolitics just kind of stay in the level of, of this kind of metic kind of circulation and i guess that's a problem for the left as well right the left needs to struggle mm. against its own
0: becoming metapolitics um right right yeah i mean i think i think with the if i'm familiar with the story that you're describing is that say for example there was an island in the middle of the atlantic ocean that had an ancient advanced civilization And this island sunk as a result of thermonuclear war. And then the refugees from that island fled to various continents on the border, on the borders, the landmasses on the border of the Atlantic Ocean. And those need to reunite to spawn the sixth root race to ascend into, I don't know, I guess we become like uh, ghosts or something like that. None of that has any bearing whatsoever on how much medical debt you have. That's the difference. Like you can get into all of the weird, religious, cultic type of stuff that you want, but these are actually two totally separate lanes. And and our task is I think to move away from the, um, I, I don't know, like pickling political ideas to hold them for some point in the future. And like, we just actually need some really basic necessities now. And these can be entirely two different categories. Uh, we have a lot of people in the discord who are super into this, uh, I don't, it's not even like hobbyism. It's just like, aren't conspiracies like fun? And they like tickle your brain sort of way. And it's like, well, what if the aliens, uh, what if um, uh, cliffs are actually like giant tree trunks that got chopped down by hundred feet tall? It's like, hey, <laughs> sure. <laughs> how about, um, how about your medical debt? Like, let's, let's continually reframe this. Yeah, so um, doing the left is metapolitics is like, uh, a, a worse failure. I will say also. I think we we do kind of need to frame this as um, a little bit of a counterterrorism question as well, because the people who went out and tried to enact their you know far right politics, uh, that stuff got nipped in the bud really quick. Those people are off the platforms. They're like they don't have bank accounts anymore. So um, for just a level of self preservation. Uh, those communities are now doing the it, just the ritual aspects of it, like okay, let's get together and we'll do the, the talk and essentially like hold church for esoteric belief systems, which is, I mean, I guess that's preferable, right? It's preferable if people are like, yeah, we're all light workers and we're doing um, we're star seeds and uh, we don't go out and protest and we don't organize and we're not uh, creating lobbying groups or 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 doing hate crimes or or shit like that. We just get together and meditate. Like, yeah, that's great. That's that's much more preferable.
2: I want. I I have this thing about um, what people have described as ecofascism. I feel like this mm-hmm. is a very vague and I think actually quite like a bad term. On which, see forthcoming book. So, but the I, I I'm one of the kind of central dimensions of it, and the reason why I think it's a bad term, is because I think that exactly what you're describing that there is a constitutive. Inability amongst people who are dominated by conspiracy, and it seems like the far right of the political spectrum is increasingly dominated by conspiracy. There is a situation that, in that in that worldview that they have, the question of whether or not there is four hundred and sixteen or four hundred and seventeen or four hundred and fifty parts per million carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is just not even a posable question. Mm. The and the question of whether or not um, various kinds of geoengineering systems might like. Work to mitigate that, or whether or not um, we need to do kind of ta- taxing of things um, in order to you know, uh, prevent uh, you know, carbon emissions, or we need to radically uh, shift on kind of path of degrowth. None of these questions even arise, and I think that maybe the, the the principal danger of ecofascism, at the moment as far as I could see it, is not that there will be some sort of mass movement which will demand punitive measures. Although that will definitely happen as well. The major danger seems to be that there will be a mass movement that simply manages to use these beliefs of the kind of conspiratorial type to forget that the world exists, to forget that climate change is a is problem, to forget that there is even a thing that can be addressed. Um, and this is why I find the aesthetic bootloaders of ecofascism that are in QAnon so worrying. Not because think they're going to do anything, but because think they're going to massively distract from the capacity of anyone to do anything at all. Mm. I appreciate that there's like in America there are much more pressing issues. I don't have any medical debt, and I don't think anyone that I know has any medical debt, at least in the UK, obviously, because we have instituted the the, the, the things that American socialists are demanding, right? Um, but yes, I
0: think <laughs> that, shows, that shows how fucking far behind the ball we are in the US. Oh, you're so too. far behind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so
1: it's fine. It's fine.
2: <laughs> yeah, when, when when even the British are ahead of you in, uh, right. in, in yeah. that's a, <laughs> political progressiveness. You <laughs> are really, yeah.
0: Yeah, I think there's a there's a great example of this. I mean, You just you brought up so many great points. I'm uh, trying to put my thoughts in order here, but um, there's I, I like to touch base on the furthest end of a political idea or political spectrum to like understand what the thing is and then bring myself back to reality. So I I find that is a helpful thing to just calibrate your worldview, to use uh, you know what is the primary source material for the extreme version of what you're talking about? Where what is at the bottom of that rabbit hole? And um, I sometimes listen to this uh, podcast from what is the guy's name? His name is Poke Runyon, and he does a podcast called The Hermetic Hour. And they have um, a magical lodge in Silver Lake, Colorado. It's some, no, sorry, Sil- uh, California. It's somewhere in California. Um, I don't really know the layout too well, but um, he was describing uh, when they first got the lease to this magical lodge and it was, it had coincided with, um, he tells the story something like this. It's very dramatic. It's like, we had just signed the lease and then we were immediately hit with a biblical flood. And after that, there was a wildfire. And he's telling the story about basically natural disasters unfolding, but somehow through divine providence, through, through the intervention of some divine force, the lodge was preserved every single time. And they have sculptures of like Greek gods and like, I don't know, like people with bird heads and hieroglyphs and just all sorts of just hocus pocus, crazy shit. But like, it, it just dawned on me that this guy is actually the best equipped to survive climate change because he has <laughs> built into his belief system, like it's it's already recuperating itself. So actually the more terrible natural disasters that unfold, the more chosen by a divine creator and divine force he is, right? So it's actually, um, it, it's kind of self-fulfilling that way. It's an excellent coping strategy. Uh, I hope he's wrong <laughs> because I prefer not to die in a flood or a wildfire, but, um, yeah, I think I think ecofascism is unfortunately um, a very slippery term, and I've seen people uh, try to use it to different ends, right? And I think some of them are uh, effective, some of them are not effective. I I think we have to frame all of this as uh, although it existed online before, it massively spikes after Christchurch, right? Like unless there were fifty people murdered in association with this term, it would not be part of the main. Uh, mainstream vernacular. But immediately after that, it was used by, I think, the the NYC DSA in a press release describing a rationing of uh, electricity during a heat wave or or something like this. And and I thought, you know, this is maybe, um, maybe this is like crying wolf. Maybe that's too extreme of a term to use, given the two, the polarity of those two examples. And that you know, potentially dilutes the, the ability of people to respond to it when there is like a real uh, a green far right threat that would actually care about environmentalism, right? So that just muddying those terms can do us a disservice later on. Um, but if you, if you go back through, through the history of that term, there's actually quite a bit uh, in it. And um, I think it's helpful to unravel some of those things. Uh, because basically the way that it's used is not really, or the way that it started is not really how it's used now. You know, I think of these kind of pagan, uh, esoteric belief systems, uh, uh this kind of a thing, which is very much about like autarky and like um, basically living off of the land and this kind of thing. And instead people are using it more to describe eco-austerity. And I think we should just say eco-austerity rather than eco-fascism.
1: I mean, I think ecofascism like suffers with the same problem that the term fascism does. People just like mm. this thing's really bad. I'm going to call it fascism. This thing's really bad, and also to do with the environment. I'm going to call it ecofascism. And it's it's like this is what we've been struggling with as a podcast as well, trying to get people to not do that quite a lot.
2: Yeah, I, I wanted to come back to one use of ecofascism that I'm sure you would support. Uh, because it's in an essay that you wrote. Um, unless you've decided to disavow that essay, I don't know. And that's from I think it's techno libertarianism to give fascism. It's mm-hmm. a kind of a, it's about a pipeline. And I wanted to come back to this kind of combinatorial um uh idea of political ideology right where kind of brands as you put them like a kind of just recombining in various ways you get this kind of absurd um neo-pagan Jewish um neo-pagan Jewish bolshevism right like um it's kind of just insane no ridiculous (laughs) kind of like uh, (laughs) (laughs) it's so silly kind of plugging together of these of, of ideologies and trying to make them stick and i guess like there's a Part of what that makes that makes that gesture so compelling is that ideologies don't hang together, particularly coherently, right? Um, this has been the case for <clears throat> definitely the Republican Party in America for like a very long time, um, trying to, to like attach free market capitalism to um, religious fundamentalism, but not allowing the religious fundamentalism to actually do anything about the free market, not allowing the free market to do anything about religious fundamentalism, right? right. So there's there's this there's kind of this just like, um, a zombie or a hybrid kind of um, ideology. But I think there was a really important way in which there's a kind of flipping of the core and periphery of ideological ideas. So this is, I think, Michael Friedan's idea. Um, And one thing that happens after Christchurch and uh, perhaps happening continuously through the alt-right is a sense that the core of the ideology is being continuously swapped out. So there was was a core of ideology that was just like race. And then there's a core of ideology that was just like, whatever gets us media attention. And then there's a core of the ideology which kind of shatters after the point where the media attention becomes quite negative. I mean, overwhelmingly negative after um, Charlottesville. Um, and so there's a sense in which people are trying to kind of reconstitute various kinds of cause to their ideology. And the reason why I think that the one way in which I think eco might be a useful term is to describe a fully environment, so to, to, to take, might be in the politics that takes, protection of nature as its single core and uses that for the justification of all the other kinds of um, things that far might want to do anyway. So for example, um, you mentioned Pentilinkola, who you're absolutely right, was pro-autarchy, but he was also pro-genocide. Um, and that's quite like an important <laughs> component of his his thinking. And so that's the one way in which I think like eco is probably a really terrifying idea. And even if it doesn't seem particularly kind of um, compelling now or particularly widespread now, one of the great things about that particular essay, the techno-libertarianism to eco-fascism pipeline essay, is that it demonstrates the sheer flexibility with which cause peripheral ideas and ideologies are simply flipped around, just moved around, have it mm. willy-nilly, just like regardless of any kind of pressure. So you go from as yeah, techno-libertarianism um through the alt-right to eco-fascism. And I wonder how you see the dynamics of ideologies changing over time. That's the kind of that's a lot of points, but it's also kind of a very broad question. Sorry, it's probably too much, but uh, yeah.
0: No, no, it's 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 great. Yeah, that's the that's the thing. It's about uh, what kind of a frame can you establish to chart the way something changes over time. Um, you could imagine just to spatialize this to to make it a meme because that's how my brain works now. Uh, You have a left-right political spectrum where you move the slider in one direction or the other. Then you have a political compass, which now gives you an X, Y axis. And you can have X-Y-Z axis and and, and expand in a level of complexity, but you also need this measurement of time. Potentially we're mapping something in four directions now and it becomes, there's just so many variables, it's very confusing. Uh, And this is where I think narrative becomes really important because we have to, spatializing and visualizing these things as data, it just becomes totally uh, nonsensical and incomprehensible. So um, specifically in that essay, I had in mind a few people uh, that I had watched for a number of years, and maybe I'll just give one one example, um, that there was someone who was deep within anarcho-capitalist and libertarian circles online and he would post a lot of uh, ANCAP memes, and then he would get into Hans Hermann Hopp, and he would get into Augusto Pinochet. And you uh, reach this point where if communists uh, make necessary infringements onto the sovereign property rights of other people within the society, then by doing that, they are violating a non-aggression principle, that they're violating your bodily sovereignty by laying a claim to your property or trying to take your property. So the only way to preserve a libertarian order is actually to preemptively violate, that this is very silly, to preemptively violate the non-aggression principle by removing the communists from your libertarian utopia. Oh my goodness, look, we've established a, a state, a monopoly on violence again. So um, the way I tried to describe it was nested a system of nested beliefs that you could begin with this kernel of libertarianism and then you could put around it like, okay, this political order is correct and we need to establish some um, some brackets outside of it, which means like a temporary state that will then wither away uh, once you have your perfect libertarian order. But in the meantime, we can uh, throw communists out of helicopters, ha ha ha. Um, from that, you have these other beliefs that uh, people, hold on to, but are not necessarily part of free market ideology. And you verge into a civic nationalism, something like this, uh, you know, we want to abolish um, taxes and, um, um, you know, federal programs. So we're gonna do things through the church. Uh, it, it kind of ripples out from there, but over time you can plot that change from different political coordinates beginning, you know, anti-state into extremely pro-state. And the person in particular, or one of them uh, that I was thinking about very vividly um, that I tried to, to point at in some of the memes, um, because I think the people who are familiar with these might might be familiar with that person. This is, I mean, this is really deep to an audience of like a few thousand at the most, but they went from posting, I'm gonna try and say this in a way that uh, <laughs> doesn't uh, reveal anyone um, in particular, who went from posting libertarian snake memes too over the course of probably three years posting among other things a man who lives in a bus in the Pacific Northwest who is a self-described eco-fascist and actually lives off of the land basically as a kind of like crust punk like the it's a squat in the middle of the woods essentially um, And is is like living that ideology that has nothing to do with free markets or libertarianism or liberty or bodily uh, autonomy or sovereign citizens or what is like this is just a fucking Nazi who lives in the woods. And seeing that transformation over three years is really um, it's a really profound thing because those two poles have nothing to do with each other. So charting the territory in between is really important, right? If you're trying to forecast and understand how political shifts like this can can happen. That being said, um, and to add a little bit of levity to the, the conversation, I guess, um, ideology is really, really complicated and really messy. And that's um, that's present everywhere. So it's tempting to like make fun of these, at the beginning, young kids and teenagers who are like buzzing through political theory and like, yeah, I'm a like a monarcho socialist or, or whatever. And they're kind of like making stuff up essentially. They're making memes. Um, but but ideology from like grown adults in positions of government and like CEOs have totally incomplete, like just fuck just nonsense belief systems. I, I wrote down a few of these. This is I'm trying to figure out like what is the best if you had to create an ideology flag for neoliberalism. Right, you you could describe it as woke diversity mass incarcerationism, rugged individualist oligarchic bailoutism. Like all of that is totally normal and accepted as common sense, but it's like, uh, uh, you know, oxymoronic and uh, on the par of like what Politogram comes up with. So I'm tempted to make the criticism cut the other way as much as possible.
2: For sure. I mean, like, if you, and if you, I mean, you said Hoppe, right? Like, hop, hop memes and, mm-hmm. um, and so on, right? The, the history of really existing libertarian thought is almost exactly the thing you traced through Robka and uh, people like that, right? That, that they basically started with a free market and they're like, oh, well, how are we going to coordinate people? Okay, well, wouldn't it be really convenient if people were already coordinated? Well, how couldn't people already be coordinated? Well, what if they were all the same race? And you're like, okay, well, that's, that, then you've like solved the coordination problem by just like making it into a race problem. So you essentially tried to flee fascism at the end of the second world war and you've reconstituted something much more like, you know, racial far right politics anyway. So yeah, I think that's totally, that's totally true. I wonder if there's also a kind of a deeper sense in which this is maybe not totally exclusive, but like actually quite particular to America, which is that America I've always thought as a completely naive and, um, I've never visited the place, so I feel like I'm talking like complete, (laughs) I'm just, I'm literally just like watching films and being like, okay, now I know about this place, Um, (laughs) reading books, like talking to Americans. I've never been. So so, what what is, I've always thought there's kind of a constitutive ambivalence between being a propositional nation in which there's like fundamentally equality first and being a a nation based on an equality uh, within a single race right? This is the constituent of grounding um, ambivalence of not only America, but perhaps even liberalism to court, right? Like the capacity that people can own property, but also people can be property. Right. And so, and so the the dynamics you were describing about the guy who came from um, libertarianism to being a Nazi living in the woods, I was like, that's so, I just thought every step of the way, I was like, that's really coherent. That maps Mm -hmm. out almost exactly the same ambivalence. That's I'm am not at all surprised. Although I I, I really watch, maybe I'm not surprised because I uh, <laughs> also spend much, much of my time watching these people. Um, yeah. Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, I think there is a danger, isn't it? Like, I'm Josh. You're more, you're more immersed in it than I am, and I'm pretty immersed in this stuff. And I've, I I kind of have a question about how we kind of communicate what's going on to people who have like literally no idea about this stuff, who like watch YouTube, normal YouTube, not even weird YouTube. And I had this experience recently of like talking to a friend and just casually talking about or bringing up soy face. And which something like I say all the time, you're a very soy person. And I, then having to like explain how estrogen and in the soy makes people go turn to women and what makes them queer and all this kind of stuff. And it's it's like this whole kind of, convoluted narrative that is really hard to explain to someone who has no idea what you're talking about. So I wondered how you, how do you communicate this kind of stuff to, I don't, I don't want to use the word normies, but like normies.
0: Mm-hmm. No, no, I know what you mean. Yeah, that's the, um, uh, that's the hazard of it, right? So when you are enmeshed or, or engrossed in uh, the fringe communities, you begin to lose the ability to speak to the outside world, right? Because what you're talking about is, is say, for example, in the term of soy, um, it's about stacking as much meaning as possible into these terms that you're like, you're compressing a lot of different thoughts into these, these terms that um, uh, to, essentially to save time. Right, because what you're what you're talking about is that in in modernization, in uh, industrialized production, in processed foods, there are things that get uh, you know put into the soup, uh, for lack of a better term, that have adverse effects on the human body or transform the human body. For me, I think those are all issues that the political left should be talking about. Right, those are things that are downstream of the profit motive. Um, I, I think that's pretty clear uh, A to B on, on that one, but some people don't see it that way. They think it's more about, I don't know, um, esoteric, uh, who knows, the soy is sentient or complete, complete and utter nonsense. Um, but yeah, so the task is how do you communicate these things to people in a way that is expedient rather than having to like, okay, let me give you 12 years of internet history before I describe this meme. Uh, that That's part of the burden. Um, I think it's uh, essentially what we've tried to cultivate in the Discord. I think it's that you have to spend time in all of the different communities, but you also have to talk to just regular people. Like <laughs> you have to exist in all of the things. And the problem of being in an internet news filter filter bubble is that you get only one side of the story. The problem of being in only one political ecosystem is that you only hear one ideology and then you erect these dogmas that you haven't even really properly thought through. So uh, I guess the answer is, I guess I'm saying be dialectical and like um, uh, touch grass, <laughs> <laughs> be dialectical <laughs> and touch grass. That's the, yeah, that's the <laughs> advice. <laughs> I, was, I was wondering about the,
2: um, whether or not there's another way of tracing the, um, the, 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 the kind of these lines of these narratives of, of changing ideologies. And mm-hmm. I've, I've always assumed, and perhaps this is just a, a foolish assumption that most people went for the ideology that would give them the most freedom, right? So that's obviously a stupid idea. Uh, That's totally naive now that I'm saying it out loud, but I've always kind of assumed that the people would change their ideological beliefs based on what they wanted to do anyway. And then they would just like to to choose choose the belief that would ultimately give them the most um, latitude to do whatever it is they want, right? Which is why you get these kind of contradictions within, for example, the left, right? Where you're like, okay, capitalism dominates everything, but whatever you want to do, is self care, um, mm, mm, and and mm. you can you you basically like you you can position yourself as kind of having a certain kind of radical identity, but at the same time you can do whatever you want with that radical identity. Mm. Um, maybe that's a totally foolish assumption, but I'm wondering if I assume it's not a foolish assumption for a moment. What or who is like best placed? Do you think over the next like four years of the probably very stultifying Biden presidency, who is best placed to? across the whole political spectrum across all the various dimensions we talked about who is best placed to produce that feeling of like radical
0: disinhibition hmm. that the for example the alt-right was so good at right oh man that is the um well you're <laughs> you hit the nail on the head that's uh yeah if i had the answer then um our problems would be solved right like that would be yeah um let's try and do this one at a time here and try to work my way out. I think, um, yes, for the freedom and ideology part, mostly in the beginning, 2015, 16, there's a, a meme, uh, people often call it flavors of anarchy, which you'll be familiar with the, um, It's usually a bunch of like pole balls or like um, little anarchy flags. And you have anarcho-capitalism, anarcho-primitivism anarcho-transhumanism, mutualism, agorism, queer anarchism, anarcho-feminism, yada, yada, and so on. Uh, Basically all the different colors with their anarchy variant. And this is a choose your own character type of a meme. Uh, You know, what Hogwarts character are you? This type of a personality quiz type thing, tag yourself. It's a tag yourself meme. That being said, uh, it's, it's important that, you know, they all happen to be anarchy. And that shows that generally in the zeitgeist, there's a distrust with centralized authorities, right? It's not like, choose your authoritarian meme. It's like, choose your anarchy meme. That's, that's what it is. Um, but I think we're at a really specific stage uh, right now, just in the development of American culture, where progressive hegemony has s- thrown such a wrench into the gears of both the political left and right, as they've been traditionally known or conventionally known, I should say, that people really don't know what to do with it. And I guess we're in the process of figuring that out because my feeling is that in an era where narratives are um, uh, deeply in crisis, or like overarching meta narratives are deeply in crisis, people are looking for a type of truth that they can trust. And um, that's something like, uh, like, like following the pleasure principle, like human pleasure should be uh, a, a, a something uh, that is part of the political portfolio of the left, right? And traditionally, or conventionally, this is how we would understand it. Um, and so much about right-wing ideology is about just being physically uncomfortable, right? Like that's literally a big part of it. Like I actually don't want things to be easy because adversity is, allows me, is what allows me to transcend. That's why I lift weights. That's why I uh, retain my semen. That's why I uh, take cold showers, all of this type of thing. I'm gonna be uh, um,
2: kind of quoting just the 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 uh, the admission that you do all those three things. So that, that, <laughs> that'll be the kind of the sting for the episode.
0: I actually do. I actually do quite a bit of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I haven't worked out in like a year because <laughs> okay. I, the the pandemic and everything. But um, yeah. Well, so okay. So let me let me frame it out like this. One of the memes that I've been joking about on the streams and whatever is something called the prude left, which I think is trying to triangulate this problem, that um, essentially, like, especially in the language of self care. There's, um, there's something where your own uh, 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 hedonic impulses are utilized against you, that you can be pacified through the consumption of uh, Seamless and Netflix, for example, or um, just things that give you like a, a tiny sense of comfort in the short term that delay you from uh, uh, taking more serious action in the long term right? You're essentially uh, in an attention economy type of a treadmill of like your feelings or, or something like that, that, that managing you uh, or managing culture and um, managing uh, society's affective qualities is part of how late capitalism is sustaining itself. And this is exactly what is in crisis right now with PMC, the media class and these pastel carousel things on Instagram, all of this. And so I think if we look in the you know the the great historical uh, lens, um, societies that involve a lot of self discipline are actually a lot more comfortable than societies that allow uh, a, a lot of pleasure. And so, <laughs> um, I'm curious if there is. I don't think that you're going to see a viral explosion of the religious left. That's not what I'm saying, <laughs> but I think there is. Um, there's something to touch base there. And what um, would maybe inform our, our politics, because I feel like, um, I mean this is we're, we're drifting here, but it's, it's a large, it's a larger just issue of like uh, the, the Enlightenment and uh, liberalism into socialism and uh, uh, all of these things. So um I don't know, essentially in the in the prude left meme proposition, what I'm trying to solve for is the issue of uh, a woke capitalism that essentially resolves itself as people who live in uh, Brooklyn <laughs> and work for like uh, elite media companies doing a lot of self-care as everyone else is subject to brutal austerity. Like I think that is the end result of a program of self-care. So um, maybe if those people had a little bit more self-discipline, <laughs> they wouldn't be making as much unpaid propaganda as they are now. That's kind of it. I, I no, think a lot. No, that's great. That, 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 that's <laughs> great.
2: I mean, I, 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 I um, I've never liked having fun either.
1: Um,
2: <laughs>
1: I, 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 I... <laughs> no, I'm entirely in favor of disciplining the PMC class. You know, they should be disciplined in multitude of ways. Uh, yeah. Um, I was actually listening to your um, your stream on, from Monday, the one you got this giant, going through this giant iceberg of ideologies for starting from like the normal ones at the top and working all your way down. I, there's some, it was it was really good. And I, I, I was quite ashamed about how many I just knew off the top of my head. It says a lot about me, basically. I wondered, what is the point of that exercise? Because you were kind of like, drawing, going over basically all of them and drawing out different things and looking them up on Wikipedia and stuff. Why should we be knowing about uh, Posadism or whatever else? Tiny, tiny, once 20 years ago was a thing. Um, mm. Why is that like a, a thing that you thought was worthwhile doing?
0: Yeah, it's funny. There's, um, when you tour these political spaces that are fringe and silly and mimetic you often come across stuff that sounds totally made up and ridiculous. Um, but one of the things that is interesting, maybe this is the um, the, the top layer or the, the of, of this building up this scaffolding. This is the most complex layer of it is that the internet is allowing this nicheification of culture, which is now playing out politically and young people are, you know, AB combinatory pairing, different identities to come up with uh, uh, monarcho uh, syndicalism as one example, this is my favorite example for it. So I'll just use that one. Monarcho syndicalism, which is definitely something that was made up by a 14 year old pairing together emojis. Right? But when you search these terms, because all of the world's information has been digitized in some way, you then start to unearth these really little known, totally bizarre histories of political movements in the past that are actually real. <laughs> So um, if you're trying to do uh, some type of a forecasting, I think it, it behooves the research to just be familiar with all of those extremities is, is the easy version of it. Um, maybe the more scholarly uh, uh, difficult version of it is that um, we have on the not too distant horizon some type of a terminal point for the political economy that has thus far organized the world and global society. And um, implicitly these memers know that, that they're on the receiving end of like planetary <laughs> extinction to, sorry to be dramatic about it. But in some cases, that, I mean, yeah, things are gonna get dark very, very quickly in the next century if things don't uh, uh, shift course in some way. And so you're seeing, I think a frantic uh, buzzing through history and theory and looking to through brute forcing these combinations and different types of political ideologies, that they could problem solve a way of organizing society that uh, was was scalable for, um, for for the the crisis of the next century that's unfolding, and uh, you know whether that is a having a monarch and a guild system probably not, but uh, as we looked at before, like our current neoliberal ideology is totally. Uh, self-contradictory and and uh, riddled with inconsistencies. So, you know, maybe they're not too far off the base, right? I guess this is this is essentially the proposition of science fiction, right? That's what we're talking about. It's like a way of envisioning or prototyping the future, but instead of doing it through memes and novels, or sorry, instead of doing it through novels, they're doing it through memes.
2: What's the, I mean, the, the collapse thing is completely fascinating and the kind of climate collapse. And it's also fascinating in terms of the discussion of pleasure that you were giving us before right? so how do you see pleasure or um disinhibition as working through collapse or is collapse just a a kind of a pleasurable masochism um, i've often found that whenever i declare the apocalypse is nigh um, that i get a certain thrill a certain rush and it imbues me with a certain very momentary charismatic power um, over people around me and then within like five minutes they're like this is actually kind of cringe um mm-hmm. i don't want to believe that the apocalypse is coming and i don't think it's really is um so i'm wondering like how and uh, when you're 14 you don't have that reflex right when you're 14 you're not like okay well people have been predicting the end of the world since the beginning of the world so you know it doesn't uh bother me but I'm, I'm wondering like how does how does discipline or disciplining other people or disciplining yourself or taking pleasure in disciplining yourself work out in the what seems to me like a huge explosion of collapse, nihilism, climate change, doom, this kind of thing at
0: the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's, um, I'm trying to remember the name of the group. I think they were artists more so than they were activists, but it was a few years ago. Maybe it was in the, maybe it was in the nineties, even I don't remember, but they had this project called fuck for the forest, which was that it was a bunch of like um, activists who would basically make pornos of their uh, the people in their commune and then they would sell the porn videos as a fundraiser for environmental, um, I don't know, uh, regulation or lobbying or something like that. It kind of seems like, oh, the world's going to end. Let's just have an orgy. (laughs) Like that's the implicit, like, there's no way you're going to raise, you know, what do you need? Like, uh, 70 trillion (laughs) dollars to like solve, uh, carbon in the atmosphere. It's like, you guys are just fucking, that's what's happening here. Um, yeah so maybe that's the furthest the first furthest extreme of that um yeah i'm trying to think of um hmm, hmm. i guess my feeling is like there's there's a small group of people that perform this role of um basically doing underpaid work propagandizing on behalf of capitalist culture uh and those people would really benefit from having social democracy in the U S context. So I'm talking about the, I gave this example on a recent podcast. So forgive me if I'm repeating myself, but um, I mean, I literally know people who wrote think pieces like Bernie Sanders is anti-Semitic and he hates women and they got paid $150. And I know that those people don't have healthcare. So just the, the idea that like that thing exists um, like that's, that's the thing that needs to be solved. (laughs) And I feel like, um, maybe a little bit of self-discipline on behalf of those people, if they were less incentivized or, or on the treadmill of like getting likes and retweets and being celebrated on social media and had the long vision of like, okay, I'm getting paid $150 now to write this think piece, but I'm going to have $10,000 in medical debt later. It's in my own self-interest to not write the think piece. Maybe that's just the discipline that it needs. Because at that point, you're really just looking at ideology, right? It's the ideology of a very small segment of the population. It's mostly geographically located, it's mostly people within the same, uh, a certain age brackets who uh, went to elite universities and are now falling out of the elites. If you can shift the worldview of those people, it would have some cascading influences i think artists are well positioned to do that so i've targeted those people as um i also personally dislike them i just I, I i like as individuals a lot of them i personally don't like so i'm i'm making fun of them on the internet is my way of coping with it um because things are very expensive here <laughs> so i kind of i kind of drifted from the conversation uh, a little bit maybe you no, can reframe it fine. and we can talk about environmentalism again
2: no, no. So I, 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 th- I think that's 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 correct. I mean, like the um, maybe um, personal antipathy, personal hatred is the central variable missing from my general theory of post- <laughs> uh, is, uh, uh Yeah. Um, what was your most um, when you were younger? I'm assuming you were also like interested in politics from quite an early age. What was the? Uh, maybe I'll volunteer mine first. Um, what was the most cringe political position you ever adopted? Mm, um yeah. so I, th- I think my most cringe political position was that i was very into the coming insurrection uh for like a while um i know i don't have the voice of someone who's into the coming insurrection but i was maybe i do maybe i have exactly the voice of someone who's in the coming <laughs> direction <laughs> no i absolutely do don't i yeah that's it <laughs> so, i i've yeah what um, what age was that uh 17
0: i think i think it did yeah it was um
2: yeah, it didn't get much more cringe than that i think i was very into plato at one point no aristotle sorry i was very into aristotle against plato when i was like 14 and then i was then i kind of took a hard a hard turn for the far left um much more kind of insurrectionary much less aristotelian um very into kind of you know the, the four different kinds of causes that aristotle identifies i was like he's correct um also his politics are all are all correct um and then yeah eventually, uh, coming into direction and now i'm um i'm a liberal obviously
1: definitely i was a massive richard doggins fan i fucking loved that guy oh I mean, my god so was I, I so <laughs> was i and i forgot. <laughs> i i suppressed it, I, <laughs> <I've> suppressed it. <laughs> I was well into the god delusion i read it about three times it's you know just i actually reread it a couple of years ago just to see what it was like and I was just like completely horrified that me as a fourteen year old was man, actually was reading this material because it was just so stupid and like racist and like very awful stuff and I, yeah, that's my thing and I, I suppose I was set on that new earthiest kind of trajectory that could have very much ended up in the alt right somewhere or in some kind of fascist sect of whatever section of the internet somewhere and it's it's really interesting kind of disconcerting thing to think about now um I'm,
2: I've, I've got an even more disconcerting one which is that, and, and people who've uh sign up our patreon already know this because i wrote an essay about it which is that there was it's very closely related to the new atheist stuff there was a guy on i, I was really into the amazing atheist mm. i don't know if you guys remember him um very annoying <laughs> in retrospect uh but i was at, at the time i was like yeah Fuck Christians. Although they're actually, I didn't know any Christians because uh, the UK is very secular. So I didn't actually, <laughs> I think I knew there was one Christian girl in my class and I was like, yeah, uh, I'm going to use these <laughs> <Fuck> arguments. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to use these arguments against this 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 girl. Anyway, and that, that kind of led onto um, what I think was a, I'm, I'm guessing I was like a kind of a someone who was like in the early EDL. The EDL was a, a street movement uh, in the UK. It was like anti-Muslim. Um, the and, and he was getting me to sign. He was getting people who had this petition on like p- parliament.gov or whatever the website is, um, which is the UK Parliament's website where you can sign petitions to send to the government. Um, and it was like ban or pr- shut down the Sharia law courts that exist in the UK. Now this was this was a total far right fantasy. Um, hmm. But when I was fourteen and on this the same track that Alex was this new atheist sound uh, new atheist kind of this track where I was really into secularism I was really into this kind of thing, I I think I either gave a fake name and signed a petition. Um, to ban Sharia law in the UK which is my only far right activism (laughs) uh, as far as I'm aware Um, or I, I, I didn't sign it because I was like I'm a kind of law abiding citizen and I'm not of age yet so I can't sign this petition but I think yeah maybe I've completely obscured the coming insurrection as like this ultimate cringe moment but actually never have a much more cringe and actually much more disturbing moment and obviously the same thing about the narrative that Alex was saying applies to me as well it's totally possible that I would have been led led astray in that way
0: but it's anyway, yeah. funny how these things fun, they're they're uh curiously next to each other where it's um when you're talking to someone who has uh beliefs that are on the borders of the overton window it's much more likely that they had other beliefs at another period of time that are also you know towards the edge or beyond the overton window right it's like once you make the rupture you can kind of ping pong around to a number of different places right once you've uncorked uh, maybe it's like a Pandora's box of ideas or something like that. Uh, you've unseated the necessary assumptions that like liberal democracy is is the best system, and you're willing to entertain a whole bunch of other things. Um, I mean, I
2: actually, the, the kind of strange thing about my position on that, uh, when I was signing the petition, is that I was doing it in favor of liberal democracy, right? So I was, I was still kind of aiming at the, the core of the present. Yeah. But the core of the present, like I was saying about America, is constituted by two very different cores. At that particular moment in British history, it was constituted by, on the one hand, new labor, and a very kind of like, uh, you mm. know, happy-clappy kind of like, Methodist kind of vibe, uh, but also with this kind of vaguely kind of, well, fuck over the unions kind of thing, but also it was constituted by intense Islamophobia, and the rise of, of the British security state, which of course has been, you know, uh, has been around for 400 years. But... Yeah, I I totally agree about this kind of thing. I I think um, Vitalik Buterin, who is uh, the Mm, inventor of Ethereum, um, he describes this as convex and concave political structures. But I guess uh, a more prominent uh, uh, promulgator of it is is JREG
1: on YouTube. (laughs) (laughs) Uh
0: Uh Yeah, yeah. That
1: that point you made about the kind of rupture thing is really interesting. There was a a subreddit that's now been banned in the various ban waves that happened uh, called Debate Fascism. And they would be the people that would set up by fascists and they would debate like uh, Mussolini or Mosley or whatever. And they would have these like ask me anything where someone would come on and say, I'm an anarchist, debate me. Or I'm a socialist, debate me. I'm an authoritarian nationalist, whatever, debate me. And it was all these very extreme uh, or outside the mainstream kind of things going on. And they were all kind of having a very genial conversation about it. I mean, there wasn't like a, I'm an anti-fascist debate me, but I could see that, I could even see that happening. There was a kind of this flattening of like any kind of conflict. And we'll just like pose these positions against each other and have this kind of conversation. And I think that would not be possible. That would not have happened. I'm a, I'm a centrist liberal debate me. I don't think that would have happened in the, in the thing.
0: Right, right. Yeah. I think of this as the sandbox problem. Yeah. So, <clears throat> um, right. That is totally unique to Reddit. That wouldn't happen if you were on the street corner or something like that. Like that doesn't happen in the public square. It happens on the internet square. It's a, it's a question of scale as well. But I think um, to, to relate this back to the earlier question of like, um, I wasn't so much interested in politics when I was in high school. I mean, I was, uh, I was interested a bit, but I was more so interested in games. And I think what games did by accident was create a similar type of a sandbox to what you're describing as, as on Reddit. So one of my um, fondest memories from the internet is a game called Cyber Nations, where um, there were these meta guilds that were from message board communities, and they formed alliances in the game. This is actually it's a really good uh, microcosm for for this stuff now actually, um, and so so Cyber Nations is a browser based game where you log in, you make an account, and then you get your country and you have resources and you pick a system of government, you pick you pick the tax rate, you pick if you want to build infrastructure or uh, parks and leisure, or you want to build factories or whatever whatever kind of like a it's it's like a Sim City but it's not in a map it's just in an Excel spreadsheet because the real game takes place on the message boards. And so you had your your, uh, political economy that you would manage through this Excel spreadsheet, and then you would debate people in the, the comments and you would get into beefs, and then these would turn into wars in the world. And um, it was factionalized in such a way that um, because there was no formal system of organizing people in the game, you would get the people from B on 4chan and you would get the goons. I was part of the Something Awful group because I had friends who were real life friends from uh, high school who were very active on Something Awful. So we were in in their group. Um, And there were ambassadors between the various uh, guild or the various alliances. And so the game was about participating on the forums with the stakes being that your country could get blown up at any time. Um, But what was really interesting about it is that because we had this think tank of people who were like, you know, just like autistic nerds min maxing a spreadsheet, we discovered that you could spend, you could spend a week not collecting taxes. You could put your whole country on like the precipice of bankruptcy And right before you, you cross over into bankruptcy, where your, your country would fall apart, you could swap from um, like a total political spectrum swap. So you'd have no, um, no taxes, no work total amount of leisure and happiness. And then you could institute fascism and put everyone to work for a week and then collect just boatloads, just huge amounts of profit. Mm-hmm. And we would time it so that the whole, the whole alliance would do an ideology switch and maximize productivity on like a weekly basis. Um, and it was, I mean, we were flourishing. We were like one of the best, uh, one of the strongest alliances. And then as, as, ha- as what happens with um, forum communities is just after a while people get bored and like our second in command decided to quit the game by nuking the first in command without any warning. And then the, the whole alliance fell apart shortly after that. So it's kind of a beautiful just microcosm of, of the way that um, online spaces allow you to play with ideology and accidentally discover stuff rather than formalizing it. And I think that's analogous also to, you know, you could extrapolate this out to guilds in World of Warcraft and different ways of uh, how do gamers solve the question of distributing scarce resources. All of those are political things, but we're not explicitly uh, uh, political when you when you start up the game.
2: Just trying to kind of wrap this all up into like a single kind of neat object. Uh so I mentioned earlier that I think the kind of the central struggle of the left, at least in some senses, like um, to struggle against the becoming meta politics of politics, like to struggle against this kind of cultural politics and uh, not to get kind of like all Adorno, but um, what is the meme that most fully struggles against its own status as being a meme? Right. Like what, what is what is the meme that is most antagonistic to the subsumption of life into the meme format?
0: It's a complicated question. It's not an easy <laughs> <laughs> so, so, okay, some, some clarity.
2: Um, Adorno's idea of art is that art is necessarily a commodity under capital, right? But like the art can register its own status as a commodity under capital and it can resist that status as a commodity in various ways, right? By being kind of in various ways like non-fungible and so on. And he has a very kind of nuanced, complicated formal argument about the autonomy of art and so on in bourgeois society blah 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 but like I'm just kind of wondering like is there a way in which the form itself the meme format itself can ultimately like get beyond it's just kind of circulation in a certain sphere without simply doing the really obvious thing right which is what the far right were really good at doing so there were a whole bunch of memes that led to the Christchurch shooting now that's a way of getting out of the circulatory economy memes something really happened and people died, like loads of people died, and it was appalling. Right? Like you, you don't want that to be the way in which you exit the kind of circulation of memes. So is there a way of like generating a meme um, such that we kind of terminate this like kind of endless kind of spinning in place uh, inside the meme economy? I see, I see, okay.
1: You mentioned oh, fungible, uh, and I just immediately thought of NFTs, and that's obviously not what you're talking
0: <laughs> about at all. <laughs> I, I, I made the same association. Yeah, yeah, The, uh, the Adorno <laughs> NFT. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think I when I hear the word meme now, I don't think about six hundred pixel JPEGs, right? So if you're talking about um, a memeplex or a, a you know a subculture that posts a lot of uh, uh, small images with text on them, and then getting out into the real world is a way of Breaking the the the, the meme um, ecosystem or what have you—that's uh, that's one way to look at it. But I think memes are just a digital version of ideology. They're frames through which you can view the world. So uh, for me, I mean, I think they're they're very effective because there's these little provocations of like, how do you view this issue? And then they just Incrementally nudge you over time, shape your way of viewing the world. So I don't think you can really move past frames. If you're talking about moving past ideology, then I think you're you're talking about having a fully, um, you know, a fully robust understanding of the world, which is uh, like the reason we have ideology is because the world is so complicated and we need to compress it down. Like it is this act of making narratives that cut through. Uh, the signal to noise mess that you get when you're looking at too much information. So not having an ideological frame sounds like the end of history. Um, I don't know. It it sounds like you've actually solved the problem of ideology and you're just actually in the world. So I don't know um, how to get there. If I had the answer, then (laughs) I'd write that down. I don't know. Yeah.
1: I mean, taking it back to this,
0: this thing of medical debt and the, the,
1: all the other stuff that it all boils down to medical debt, I think, um, I don't know the answer to this question either, but I would say that a meme or some kind of frame that uh, it, uh, kind of provokes action to solve these kind of material, very material, very concrete things is somehow breaking out of this kind of meta, metapolitical political kind of trap that we're, that we're all kind of trapped in. Totally,
2: totally. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense yeah i mean definitely uh, my framing it as a uh a kind of question rooted via adorno is not the way of making it like instantly solvable uh, or like, making it kind of useful at all to <laughs> any kind of leftist strategy um <laughs> thank you very much for uh coming and talking to us uh oh, it's, it's great to chat plug plug the thing whatever you want to plug you've got a new piece um, in the guardian which i haven't actually
0: read yet but um it's uh yeah it's, we'll it's circulating charts. around there yeah it's um uh, you can check out that in the in the Guardian from um, what was it a, a few days ago now, um, yeah I think probably the the best place is uh, to check out the podcast uh, that that I do monthly I also Twitch stream I'm, I'm sprinkled throughout all of the different things because I think the, the greater project is just this um, this immersive research project that takes the form of Twitch streams of articles of podcasts of memes of a Discord community it's like all of the stuff so. Um, yeah, but it's all under my name. You can, you can find me on any of the given platforms and, um, yeah, maybe join us for the second half of the ideology iceberg. And it's starting to get really weird that we're halfway through it. It's
2: starting to get very weird. Thanks a lot for listening. If you enjoyed that, then you can help support the podcast on Patreon. All the support we get means a lot to us and it really does help us grow this project. So that's patreon.com slash 12 rules for what, and you can sign up for as little as $2 a month thanks a lot and i will see you very soon
0: hello and welcome to we will remember freedom a monthly podcast of anarchist fiction i'm your host margaret kiljoy hello and welcome to live like the world is dying your podcast for what feels like the end times i'm your host margaret kiljoy Hello, and welcome to The Jingle for both of my podcasts. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. You can find my podcast wherever you get your podcasts or get them from the Channel Zero Network. Twelve Rules...